So I want to read a passage straight away and then come back to that a little bit later on. It's quite a well-known passage about um, a guy called Jonathan. He was the son of the king at that time of Israel, the king of Israel called Saul. We go back to these stories in the Bible because we believe the Bible is an inspired book and that the, it writes down faithfully accounts of people's experience walking with God in past centuries for our instruction and our inspiration. So um, we start reading at verse 1 of chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father, the king Saul. Da, 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 da. Right? Saul was staying, this is King Saul, was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. So he's of the priestly class. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitob, son of, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. So you had the political power and the religious power there. But again, this kind of uh, shadow wafts over the story. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. Then verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north towards Mishmash, the other to the south towards Geba. So we have a scenario that's a quite a defensive, well-defended position with the Philistines up there. And Jonathan, verse 6, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It's a great promise in Scripture to remember. Then verse 7 the armor-bearer replies, do all that you have in mind. His armor-bearer said, go ahead, I'm with you heart and soul. And Jonathan said, come on then, we'll cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you our lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up with me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole Philistine army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Father God, we want to pray that today we would have a spirit like the spirit of Jonathan and you would help us to set our sails as he did to respond to you, to walk on the water that he was called to walk on. 
And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Speak to us, change our attitudes, impart faith to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know how well you're doing writing 2018 instead of 2017. Um, do, do, you, do you find that you get that right, or do you just never write the date? That might, be, that might make it harder, actually, to remember to write 2018 when you actually do need to. But this is going to be another year of the increase of the loving rule of our God and Saviour. And in just a few weeks' time, we're going to have the Winter Olympics. Right in South Korea, we've got the, one of the, it's the website for it. And um, yeah. do you think we'll get any medals? Yeah. Curling, do you think, maybe? You never know, we might get some medals. But we kind of do a little bit stronger in the Summer Olympics, don't we? And as people have often observed, Great Britain specialises in sitting down sports. <laughs> have you ever thought about that? Right? right? You, horse riding, right? rowing. Cycling, we're good at all these things, aren't we? But that's where you sit down. And sailing, you sit down as well. We're very good at sitting down sports. Now, I did quite a lot of sailing as a child. And you know, when you're sailing, you can't control the direction of the wind, but you can still make progress if you will adjust your sails, right? So on my Facebook page, I have a picture, actually, of, uh, we went sailing on one of the Italian lakes a few years back. Uh, I wasn't in control of the boat, just for the record. And, um, but it's, it's just brilliant fun uh, sailing. But you have to adjust the sails in order to go in the direction you need to go. And sometimes you can't go directly in the direction you need to go, but you can get almost in that direction, and then you have to tack and make progress towards where you intend to go. Change is inevitable. right? The direction of the wind changes in life change happens. Change is inevitable. Progress is optional because you may just go, get blown along by the winds of change or you can decide, no, I know where I want to go and wherever the wind is coming from, I will adjust my sails to make progress. Now this year, um, excuse us if you're visiting, but it's a slightly sort of internal thing, but having been the leader of the elders for over 20 years, it's now news that I'm going to be leaving at the end of March. And Nathan is going to be coming. Uh, he is a, one of the elders already. He's going to be leading the eldership. That's a change in the church community. And Jesus often used, you'll often see in the Gospels, a situation arose and Jesus would teach on the back of that situation. And I thought I would do that this morning because we may need to adjust our sails to adjust to the changes that are taking place. And what kind of attitudes, what sort of actions help us to position our sail so that we make progress when there is a change? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a lifelong supporter of Manchester United. And I know you're laughing because the truth is I've never been. I know almost nothing about it. I put Manchester United like people put Church of England when they go to hospital. And, um, uh, uh, but... The thing I've noticed about people who follow football is they always follow a team. They don't follow a coach or a player. They follow a team. Is, is, that's true, isn't it? You get a season ticket to watch a team. You don't get a season ticket to watch Lionel Messi or, uh, or, or whatever. You might have opinions that coaches tend to come and go and the players tend to come and go, but men are more faithful to the football team they support than to the women they're married to. Right? That is a sad truth. Right? And it's wrong, that's evil, but that's, that is a sad truth. Um, 
Now, I, I'm just going to get right out there with something, because the news that I was going to be leaving could well have affected the sense of commitment you have as a fan of Beacon Church, if I can describe you as that, if you're a regular part of the church here. For some people, the news I was leaving might have increased your sense of, of commitment to the church, of opportunities to serve, opportunities to have influence that you think will open up because I'm leaving. And for others of you, the news that I was leaving might have caused a diminished sense of commitment, a sense that maybe you're going to lose influence or whatever. And I think we need to put those things out there and process them as we process the change, because otherwise we won't adjust our sails in order to make progress during that time of change. All kinds of factors play out when change is happening. And uh, there's a lot of research shows that people um, in general, it's not, it's not always the case, but many people value what they have over what they might have. So when you're losing something you have, you feel that loss much more keenly. So for example, that can be a very good inclination. I have a wife. I value having my wife and it's good that I value that and don't spend my time fantasizing about having another woman for my wife other than the woman I already have. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. And I'm proud to wear a wedding ring to mark that I'm taken. Yeah, And that's a good thing. But there are other situations where holding on to something that we have is a bad idea. And because it wouldn't be good. I've heard that the first lifeboat that went off from the Titanic had an official capacity of 40 people, but only had 12 people in it. Because they had great difficulty persuading people to get off the Titanic and get onto the lifeboats. And that's because, and I've heard other stories of this in ship sinkings, that people feel this large metal ship must be safer than this tiny little lifeboat. Psychologically, it looks safer, and therefore people are reluctant to make that step. Or maybe, uh, you've, you, you, know, you, must, you, you may know people, who, uh, women who have these BRCA1 and 2 genes, that make you much more susceptible to certain forms of cancer. And some famous people and non-famous people have chosen to let go of something they have, have a double mastectomy, for the sake of a benefit they perceive. And so there are times when we hold on to things quite rightly. And there are other times when actually it's important to let go of things. But it's always a challenge. That's a change that is a challenge. Now, uh, <coughs> I'm rather gratified that some people have come up to me to say, what a great loss it'll be that I'm leaving. Right? I'm naturally, I would be gratified if someone would say that to me. Um, I mean, but I would think that, wouldn't I? But an other part of me hopes that you won't take focus on that loss too much, because that can be a bad way of handling change. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes I bid for stuff on eBay. Do you, do you ever do that? Okay, can you try and imagine bidding for something on an auction, right? If you, you've, so you've found something, right? You've found something on eBay. You think, oh, that would just be right in such and such a situation. It might be a piece of furniture or a piece of equipment. And so you start bidding on it. You don't want to pay too much. And you're evaluating what you think. But you, because you're bidding on it, you start to become actually quite keen on having this thing. And... Um, 
but at the same time you're not foolish so you don't overbid because you know it's possible to bid for something on eBay and pay more for something second-hand than you can buy it for new at another shop so you have to always be reasonable and occasionally I've bid on something and then not got it you, you ever had that experience and I'm I'm gutted oh, I didn't get it if only I'd have bid a little bit more yeah, you, you know that thing because it's not like an auction where there's that kind of the auctioneer is got his gavel and he's saying okay once going once going twice and you can say yes I'll pay a little bit more on eBay you kind of don't really have that option you kind of put in your highest bid anyway I often find then once I haven't won that item I then start rationalizing well actually you know I'm, I'm quite glad I didn't win it after all it, it probably was a bit too tall and it wasn't quite the right color or whatever do you, you, don't you do that you kind of rationalize and, and you, you make your you dispense your disappointment you deal with your disappointment by seeing the negatives of the item thinking yes I'm quite glad I didn't get it after all that's good that's what I do it's a psychological thing and so it's quite possible in my leaving you'll do that with me you'll start to think yes I was disappointed but actually you know there was a few things that you know could have been a bit Andrew could have been a bit different in or whatever and that's probably what you will do you might well do that because you'll be dealing with that sense of loss and hopefully you'll be kind to me but it's quite likely to happen now there's a grid about responses to change um, which has been popularized over many years by people various people and uh, so uh, and these are the different ways people can be responsive to change so if we start with the radical box here these are people who respond to change emotionally and they they love change so radicals they are the Corbynistas of any organization they that they, they, they love change any new change that comes along they want and um, I'm not so, these are huge generalizations these boxes but you might think that you fall into the some of these boxes with some areas of change you might fall into one box in one area of change and into another box in another area of change so it's fine there's they're not really evil wrong things do you understand here but it's just our different orientations so um, you know the weakness maybe of radicals is that they are onto the new fad before the previous fad has been implemented there may be so into the new thing that they're always into the new thing and they can be overly concerned with novelty and novelty can be a big thing in our current society and then there are the progressives they are um, very positive about change as well um, but they also quite quickly onto new things it's a much larger group of people typically and uh, they may not stick around to implement it the conservatives those with a conservative response who have a conservative response to a particular change well they they're not quick to embrace change they're oriented for the status quo for leaving things as they are and this is a very large group of us many of us are prefer the status quo um, but it's curious that actually this is the group who in the end will pay for the change Right? these are the people who pay they'll probably do most of the work they'll plan it and they'll fork up the money for the change that the radicals and the progressives think is wonderful but maybe don't deliver on and that's often how it works out actually in all kinds of communities and then the traditional responders to change who just don't like change at all and always want to go back to how things were before and 
least difficult, least it's hardest perhaps to see the positives in that approach, but often it's to do with the fact where we have other insecurities going on in our lives, and that means that it's difficult for us to cope with additional changes, but maybe because of other things, bereavements, difficulties in our workplace or whatever, because most of us can only cope with change in so many areas of our lives. Uh, otherwise we become quite stressed, and in those situations we become more embedded and needing to keep some things the same for the sake of our security. And so we can understand why this can happen. Now, in any change, there are pull factors and push factors. And sometimes it's good to think through those factors in when we're faced with a change, because usually there are some changes we cause ourselves, and there are other changes that get caused by others, and we are, as it were, the victim of those changes. We are at the receiving end of them. And so in this particular matter, you, you have not rejected me, as it were, and sometimes change can feel like rejection. It's an interesting word to bring into it, but we need to be careful how we think of these things. Um, but there are push factors and pull factors. So a push factor can make us quite uncomfortable. I don't know whether you've ever had, I remember one of our daughters having a party at home, and all kinds of people ended up at this party. I'm not even sure they knew some of these people that well. And this one guy stayed on and on and on, and eventually I was pretty rude to him to say, you need to go now, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, um, but um, this was when they were late teenagers, you know, not when they were seven or eight, do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it's, it's interesting, those situations, when you have a guest in your home that you're not quite sure you want there. In fact, it's quite uncomfortable, and you'd like to get them out. And change can be like that, an unwelcome guest something you didn't want to get into the home, and now it's arrived, and I wish it wasn't here. Um, but we are invited, in a sense, we need to work out how we deal with change, because you can't control changes in the direction of the wind, but we can control how we set our sails, so that we are still making progress, never mind what direction the wind is in. So, pull factors can be things which we need to refresh, actually, and to think about love and joy and peace, like we were talking about, to think about going after the Holy Spirit and the Kingdom of God. And he's called us last week, has been referenced already, to go after the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then another factor with changes is that often we, we don't necessarily do this consciously, but there's some sense of there being winners and losers, whether we are... And I think we can be naive in not taking account of these things. And we need to think about them. Because maybe you've been in the church since before I came, and you became a bit of a fan of, of, of me for some reason, and, um, and you feel a bit bereft at the thought of my going, or even disenfranchised. Um, whereas others who maybe know Nathan and some of the younger guys we're proposing for eldership, you might be really keen for that change. Well, change is going to happen, isn't it? It will happen, and therefore orientating our sails so that we make the best of that and embrace it is really helpful for us to do. Change is hard at first, it's messy in the middle, but it can be glorious in the end. And then people might be saying, well, Andrew, why are you even going? And, you know, sometimes I ask myself that question. Um, but because I could have just sat here and continued. But 
we've been cultivating, as Pradeep shared powerfully at one of the church meetings, we've been cultivating younger leaders, and there's a kind of pathway that you set yourself on, and the result of that pathway is actually to release people to step up. So if you don't then do that, you become a blockage. This is the process been going on many years, and it actually has to have a release. There has to be an outcome to it, and I think it's good that that is happening. I think it's actually for blessing for the church. And now, of course, that doesn't mean necessarily that I would need to leave and depart, as it is that is what's happening. And I think there are some advantages to that. It's not essential, but there are some advantages for the ongoing elders in that. And so let's look for the, p the benefits and see the positives of that. And apart from anything else, the church can't pay for me and for Nathan, so there needs to be that, that, that going on, and I would have moved away anyway at the point of retirement because we would need to do that ourselves. So it seems we asked God about that. We came up with this idea whether we would move away to West Yorkshire when one of my daughters lives with her family. We asked God about it, and we felt God saying, yes, you, 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 now is the time to go. And so... Um, and God keeps encouraging us about that, actually. Some of you know Jill Mills. Do you remember Jill? She's a volunteer chaplain at St. Peter's Hospital. She's part of Walton Baptist Church. She came to preach for us one Sunday morning, and she came a couple of times at least to the welcome group that we used to run. And she's a very godly woman, very prophetic. And uh, I was at the St. Peter's Hospital carol service just before Christmas and met her there and was chatting afterwards. And I told her about going, and she, she was very positive and said about how that's very good and something like this. And, um, and then she referred to a scripture she'd just been reading a few days before. It was the very scripture that God used when he called me into full-time ministry, right? So you just, just little encouragements like that. You just think, oh, wow, okay, thank you, Father. And um, so it's an adventure for me as well. Um, thinking of what I'm going to do instead, applying for jobs, thinking of what my transferable skills are. There's changes that we face, and it is challenging and interesting. But it's where life is an adventure, as we were reminded by Kabatha, and it creates opportunities for faith and for readjusting where we position our sails to receive the wind well. So... Um, <clears throat> Now, the fact, though, that I'm departing is not some message to people my age and older that we're supposed to back off or step back. Absolutely not. I will be totally committed in a local church and serving there and thinking of the ways I can serve because that is my heart commitment, right? My heart is for the cause of Christ. And so the assistance and strength, the wisdom, the experience that we have as as people who are somewhat older, is needed, it is required, it is essential. And I know the heart of the, the, the new younger elders in our church is very much for that. I, that I've, it's not something I've coached or schooled, they are spontaneously saying that. So I want that to be heard loud and clear. And generational challenges are big issues in our world. They are challenging because once upon a time, culture was very similar across all the generations, but now these things are very different. And that is challenging. And I believe it is up to us older people who have that maturity 
to actually make way in matters of style for the expression of the younger ones. And so I, I, I came some years ago, John Ortberg, who's now pastor of Menlo Church in California. He was at Willow Creek for many years, Willow Creek Church in Chicago. Um, he wrote a great article, and I'll just take a section out of it. It's on the overhead, Colin. He said, those of us who are older tend to underestimate the difference between generations. We think that what feels comfortable to us will not or should not be a barrier to those who are younger. Those of us who are younger tend to overestimate the difference between generations. We feel as if those who are older are a different species and could never understand our experience. And he writes this to say, look, both of these are distortions. Both of these are mistaken views. All right? So, younger adults, you are overestimating the generational divide. Those of us who are older are not as out of touch as you think. And we feel like you inside. It's only when we look in the mirror that we realize how old we are. Okay? And, um, so, um, and we don't, you know, we're coping with growing older, but inside we feel a lot younger. And uh, so cut us some slack and... Uh, Communicate, do communicate with us, we'll try to communicate with you. It's great that there is such a cross-generational feel in this church. I'm so grateful for it, and I think owning that is a really good thing. But we, I must also say to us as older, myself, us who are older, um, we're probably underestimating generational divides. We're probably underestimating how much things need to change so that the gospel will really connect with a younger generation. So let's listen to that wisdom from John Ortberg, I, I pray. Someone wrote this about change. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I cannot accept, and the wisdom to hide the bodies of those people I killed today because they wound me up. Now let's go back to this episode in the Bible with Jonathan adjusting his sails to deal with change. The situation was King Saul was king about 1050 to 1010 BC. So it's a thousand years before Christ. We're talking 3,000 years ago. It's a period of history when the ancient Near East was transitioning from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Now iron was a good development. Iron isn't necessarily harder than bronze. If you have enough tin in your bronze, it's actually harder than iron. Once you have steel, then steel's much harder. But that was a later development. So in some ways, bronze was not a very backward technology, but iron was definitely an improved technology for several reasons. One, iron was much more lightweight, and if your sword is lighter, you can probably wield it more easily. But also, you, could, you can fashion a much better quality iron sword very easily, whereas to fashion a bronze sword was much more difficult. Plus, the other thing is that iron is abundant all across the earth. I mean, the, the earth has a big iron core in the middle, which obviously is not where we get our iron, but iron is very, um, it's very common everywhere, whereas tin in particular is very rare. So those civilizations that got into the Iron Age could make lots of weapons, whereas if you were stuck with bronze, you couldn't make so many weapons. And it's thought, generally thought the Philistines were into the Iron Age. 
And if we read in 1 Samuel 13, you'll find that they killed off all the blacksmiths amongst the Israelites because that was a way of controlling whether the Israelites could get the iron weapons. So the Israelites always had to go to the Philistines to get their agricultural implements and pay for it. You can read about all this in 1, Corinthians, sorry, 1 Samuel 13. And, um, and, and so there was this technological difference. So if we read in 1 Samuel 13, 22, that on the day of the battle, which is recorded in 1 Samuel 14, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So the, the Israelites were at a technological disadvantage. And, and there was a wind of change, of technological change. Friends, we live in a world of technological change. In fact, compared to then, technological changes come one on top of the other faster and faster. And, and sometimes when there's technological change, we can feel left out, left behind, um, that you know, all these young people have this, that and the other and whatever, uh, and we can find it difficult. But let's, let's not take that approach. Let's see the value of technology. Let's make use of it without being a slave to it, because clearly one can be a slave to it. So it's, a, it's one of the changes we have to deal with. Now the answer for the Israelites, they didn't think, oh, Jonathan and Saul have got swords, we better get rid of those because we want to give up technology. We're going to go and hide and s sort of lock things down in some place. A bit like the Amish do in America, if you've heard of the Amish, they're sort of Christians who decided they will only live with the technology available in Bible times so they use horses and carts and stuff like this and they don't use any modern technology they don't have phones or electricity or stuff like that it, some of them are a little bit more uh, um, accommodating of these things I don't think that's a good approach to take it, technology can be used for great evil but it can be used for good so then moving on J Jonathan did not focus on what he was losing in the change. There was a change here. What was the change? Now I'm going to speak now about a different change that was happening. You see, when we read in 1 Samuel 13, we find that his father Saul was a difficult character. He was quite immature. He was a fearful person. And uh, he had some soldiers with him, as we've read. But actually some of the soldiers started scattering because they saw the Philistines. There was lots of them. They had 3,000 chariots alone and they had 6,000 charioteers. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when the waves are high, when your opposition looks big, it's, uh, it's tempting to run away. Right? To run away from the thing. To run away. You think, oh, it's a mountain. I don't know whether I can do this exam. Is that what I can do? And we feel like, no, I won't do this. I'll, go, I'll run away. Life can bring challenges to us. And, um, uh, but sadly, Saul was particularly disobedient to God. He did a number of things, and he really disobeyed God. And so in uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, there's a slide for this, Colin. Uh, the prophet Samuel, who's the, 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 the Samuel the book's named after, he says to Saul, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command of the Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom, your dynasty over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Your dynasty, the house of Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That means for Prince Jonathan, the son of Saul, something quite important. Right? One day he is the heir of his father to inherit the throne and then the next day, 
that's gone. It's been snatched from him. He's no longer the heir to the throne. God has spoken, and he's a godly person, so he accepts this prophetic word from Samuel. God has spoken, someone else is going to be king, not, not, not Jonathan. He will not be inheriting the throne from his father. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had lost something like that, I would be completely preoccupied with focusing on that loss. And I think that would be very understandable. But we see how Jonathan, in that place of great change for him, he does not focus on that loss. I would have become disappointed, certainly battling with disappointment. I think it would have taken me at least a few days. Maybe he did have to battle something through in this. I don't know. But we can be passed over for promotion in our workplace. Uh, we can be given, we can have a manager who gives us all the most difficult jobs and a, a, a pl and rewards other colleagues of ours with less unpleasant jobs um, and we can find this kind of thing challenging and when that kind of happens I know that in my spirit how I can go on an unofficial work to rule I can think oh, well if that's how it is I'll be you know I'll just I'll be clock watching I'll just do the absolute minimum and I'm in work in body but no longer in heart and my motivation can slip my commitment to the job can diminish and the same can happen to us in many scenarios it can happen to us in church we can get cross with God actually it can work in our spiritual lives if something we were expecting doesn't turn out we can get very cross with God well if that's how you treat me God I'm going on strike I'm not going to fight I won't be going to prayer meetings anymore I'm just going to throw my sword down I'm throwing the toys out of the pram whatever the sort of language we use um, but Jonathan didn't react like this. He was given immense grace not to focus on what he had lost. And uh, so the reason that he leaves the camp without explanation is not because he was rebelling against God or because he was sulking. It was because he saw he was still focused on the mission, on the kingdom of God, on what God was doing in the earth. And so he he was for the Lord he was not bitter he was going after God's purpose and so to set your sails at, and to make progress at a time of change is to focus on God's kingdom and that's what we see him do others were scattering and losing their nerve his own father seeing the people scattering out of fear lost his nerve and did something he wasn't supposed to do how easy it would have been for Jonathan to lose focus at this time of change and to go to be moved to a place of fear there's nothing so infectious as fear and so important therefore to keep our place of faith you know it's perfectly possible because it frequently happens that when I leave the end of March some people may choose to leave this church because I've left or at the same time um, in spite of me leaving I don't know do you understand? It's perfectly possible that could happen. And uh, I don't want that to happen, but it's perfectly possible. And so um, we, we, I want to kind of say Jonathan saw people scattering, but he had faith in God and he went after kingdom opportunities. And I want to hope that you would do that too. He'd settled on serving the Lord and he'd set his sail to make progress and so he was clear that he wanted to do 
to fight God's enemies in his situation. Never mind. In other words, he was going to behave like a king even though he had no prospect of ever being king. And that is our call as well, to be in the earth as those who bring the goodness of God and the salvation of God, to be his sons and daughters in the earth. And uh, so, and he doesn't tell his father because his father's got confused, he's lost the plot, he's in a place of fear, and he's very focused on numbers because you see that Saul is constantly worried about the loss of numbers and then counting how many he has. But when it comes to Jonathan, of course, we're told he didn't have faith in numbers because he can say, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So his focus was on the Lord and his trust was in the Lord. So then we see, so he doesn't focus on what he's lost. He does focus on the mission of God because he says to his armor bearers, hey, come, let's go up to, this, to these uncircumcised, to the outpost of these Philistines. Come on, let's go. And so he does something with the tools he had. He had a sword. Most of the people did not have swords. He doesn't judge them for having swords. And he's got an armor bearer with him that he's probably known for a long time and he knows the spirit and heart of this armor bearer. And so he announces this crucial decision. Come, let's go up. There's something terrifically important about settling your commitment to the kingdom of God. Settling that in your heart. And not just settling it in your heart, but if you would speak it out to other people, that really is powerful. Jonathan did that. When we handle change, one of the ways we set our sails is to announce what our commitment is. My, is it Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he announced to the people of Israel. And countless times in scripture we get these declarations of devotion, what my heart has settled on. This is my commitment. And here Jonathan is saying, as for me, I am going after what God wants to do. Are you with me, armor bearer? And so uh, he gets it out there and he makes it public. And so that's such a good thing to do. <clears throat> so now we, in this matter, Jonathan's logic, he doesn't have a particular word. The Samuel hasn't come to him and told him that he should do this. He doesn't have a special direction from God. But he knows this, that God is with God's people and that God is not with the Philistines. And therefore, this is worth a punt. Let's go up there. We're, we're the people of God. They're uncircumcised. They don't have faith in God. Their lives are in, in confusion and in mess. We have God with us. So it's worth going on a venture here. It's worth stepping up. I might be wrong. He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. He's saying, I can't guarantee it, my friend, armor bearer. I can't be sure, but I think God's, I know that God is with us. I know that God doesn't want us oppressed by the Philistines. Therefore, there's, there's a better than even chance that there'll be something good that will come out of this. Because when you follow Christ, you have to believe that blessing is around your life. You've got to believe that you exist under the favor of God. That you don't come arrogantly to God demanding that he would always bless you and make everything work out perfectly. But you have confidence that when it comes to kingdom effort, God would be upon it. And that's what we find with things like Food Bank or Just a Helping Hand. And it's our experience commonly that we find evidence of such things. 
And so he steps out and makes this proposal. And wow, what a great friend it is when somebody will say to you, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you heart and soul. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great to say things like that to, to one another? I hope people will say that to Nathan. I believe people have been saying it to him. I've heard some of the other guys we're proposing for eldership saying to Nathan I would love to be part of that team right so this is great to have that kind of thing that's what happens around in food bank in lots of the teams in the healing on the streets in a sense we may not say these words but by our actions we say go on let's go for it I'm with you so Jonathan enacts the plan and um, <clears throat> I mean, it's a crazy plan. We've, I'm sure you've heard talk of this before. <coughs> I mean, I've never been a soldier, but I've watched enough war films to pick up a few tips about these things, you know. And so you, you know that just two of you is not very good attacking a great number of people. It can't be very good to attack uphill, can it? That can't be easy. It must be much easier to do back there going uphill. Um, it's much easier to defend a position than to attack. Yeah, I've learned that from war films. And, and stuff like that and of course it's much easier if you have weapons because the armor bearer would have just had an agricultural implement that's not going to be really clever is it you're kind of trying to use it to do something different so, so, so there's they, Jonathan and his armor bearer have no advantages I, oh they just have one advantage they have the advantage of surprise now that's a good advantage ah oh dear did you remember in the story they give up the advantage of surprise by standing up and going, Hey, we're here. We're coming up. And so you think, this is mad. This is crazy. Um, it's not sensible. And, and even the test he puts, he suggests to the armor bearer, look, if they say, come up to us, that doesn't seem to me like a real test because that was the only sensible military thing to do. It would have been crazy to break cover and go from your defensive position out so the most sensible thing for them to do is say you come up here and we'll teach you and then he said that's the sign that God's going to give us give them into our hands well there we go he and God does and and God acts and throws a panic into the whole army and that's a a wonderful thing so just in summary before we make one final thing change is challenging we can't control all the changes that happen to us. The wind, the direction of the wind, we cannot control. But we can set our sails so that we catch the wind of circumstances and the wind of the Holy Spirit so we make progress towards what God's will is in the earth, in our neck of the woods and around our lives. So when it comes to things like changes in technology and changes, let's not feel fearful by the grace of God let us embrace changes that come along. Secondly, let's not focus on what we're losing. Because when we focus on what we're losing, we will lose our way. Don't focus on what we're losing. Look at the pull factors that pull us onwards. What God is saying, even how he spoke through Felix last week, and in different things. And then let's make a settled commitment to the kingdom and the purposes of God. Never mind where we are in it. Jonathan was losing status, what have you. He was losing influence. But he could still behave like a king. Isn't that wonderful? Take the title taken away, it shows that his heart was really with the Lord. Because it didn't matter to him whether he would ever have the title king. 
he would behave like a king. Maybe you will, won't be an elder or a deacon in the church or whatever, but you can do good. You can be a channel. You can bring healing. You can bring wisdom. You can have a heart like Jonathan as the God works in you. And uh, we thank God that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit made an agreement in all eternity. A bit like that conversation between Jonathan and his armor bearer. And Jesus may have said to the Father, Oh, let me go to the earth. Let me go to the earth. Right? And they agreed. The Father and the Holy Spirit agreed. And he showed himself, just like Jonathan stepped out in front of the enemy and said, Oh, here I am. Jesus took on the form of, a, of humanity and he showed himself in the earth. And he was mocked and despised. And his enemies said, you come up here to Golgotha, to Calgary, and we'll show you what for. And he didn't run away. He set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And when the mob came to rest him in the night, they all fell down. But Jesus didn't kill them. He let them arrest him. And they tried him and judged him. And they crucified him. And the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our selfish ambition, that was put on him. Our foolish fears, they were put on him. Our wavering of faith, that, that was laid on Jesus. Those times when we disobey Father and we don't step out into that adventure, that was laid on Jesus. And although he knew no sin, he was made sin for us. That those adulteries, those lying, the thieving, was laid on him. The domestic abuse was laid on him. The racism, the prejudice, the superiority, the pride was laid on him. So we can go free. And the father who was never unjust but always holy turned his face away and punished sin in his son. Why was that? It was so that the Father wouldn't have to punish you for your sin. And on the far third day, the Father raised him to life by the Holy Spirit. And the ground shook and a panic started in hell that is still continuing. Right? The Lord acted in a much greater way. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Deliverance is now assured. We will be brought into God's future. The gospel will succeed. Thank God.